Take a look behind the curtain with a real whistleblower and American patriot. Prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truth because this program has no time for comforting lies. Here is civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and recovering FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show. Thank you so much for joining me on this Friday, July the 14th. I'm going to do something a little bit different because we are on the road right now. We're going to give you a second guest of the week. This is a little bit of a shorter interview, but I think you'll enjoy it nonetheless. Uh, this gentleman came to my attention because he picked a fight with people who are engaged in this culture war. And uh, that brought the scrutiny of the New York Times, which makes you a suspendable in my book. So a young man, but someone I think you will enjoy hearing from nonetheless. Before we do that, I want to say a thank you to our sponsors, and you know them very well. How about this one right here? How about my friends over at Patriot Coolers? They are built for freedom. It's patriotcoolers.com. That's how you find them. And you can use promo code Kyle, K-Y-L-E, to get 10% off on anything you buy. So that's quite a deal. And if you do so and you spend more than 50 bucks, you're going to get free shipping. So that's also pretty nice. And you know that you're both supporting The Kyle Serafin Show and our veterans who are suffering from issues with mobility. They do give a portion of every sale to this veterans charity. You can check it out. They've given over, I think, $300,000, maybe $400,000 to this veterans charity over the last couple of years. So outstanding stuff on their end. It says Patriot on the side. It is designed in ways that you will like. And uh, if you're following my social media, you've seen some of the great pictures of them. And in fact have one right here sitting next to me. This one was holding water until I got totally hydrated. It is hot here in Texas, and I recommend them. So check out patriotcoolers.com using promo code KYLE, K-Y-L-E, for that 10% off. And we should also say thank you to Catholic Vote, our buddies over there at catholicvote.org. There it is, catholicvote.org, America's top Catholic advocacy organization in the fight for faith, freedom, and family. Uh, you've heard me talk about it before. You can sign up for their email chain. It is called The Loop in the, in the way that it will loop you in. You put your email in, you add your zip code, and you'll get a list of useful and I think intelligently written articles every morning. Uh, some of them come from Catholic Vote's own news service. Some of them from the major news wires that you are used to. But they'll keep you armed with information on far more topics than we can cover here on The Kyle Serafin Show. Again, catholicvote.org. Check them out. They are definitely our friends, and we are really appreciative. Now, this interview is going to be something that's, uh, like I said, a little different. This gentleman is quite young, and I think you guys will enjoy hearing an articulate young voice in the fight for freedom as well. Someone who cares about this country and has a very common sense sort of approach for a highly evolved intellect. Uh, I wish I was confident that I was that articulate and capable at the age of 19. So stay tuned. You're going to enjoy this. This is our young friend, Daniel Schmidt. Ladies and gentlemen, as promised, we now have a guest who is a junior at the University of Chicago, a very prestigious academic institution, a place that I visited when I was thinking about going there in the year 2000, many, many years ago. And now we have Daniel Schmidt, who is apparently an instigator, potentially a cyber terrorist, a guy who has now experienced the wrath of the New York Times with a hit piece. There's nothing more suspendable than having the New York Times say that they don't like you. And so we're going to welcome him to the Kyle Serafin Show. Daniel, thank you for joining me, bud. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. So you've had a pretty interesting uh, go of it. I've seen you kind of poking the bear a few times. You have your own website. What's the website called? 
Uh, not anymore, actually. I used to have a website called College Dissident, uh, but I've actually stopped for some reason. So now it's just on Twitter. I'm totally independent. And you have a significant following there, over 45,000, what, 48,000 followers or so? Yeah, it's it's funny. After that New York Times piece dropped, I gained like 13,000. So it's always like the unintended consequence. It's like they try to smear me and I actually get more support because <laughs> no it, one it is New Times seriously anymore. Yeah, it's the Streisand effect. They don't understand how that works, that when they highlight someone, we go, oh, there's a culture warrior. We like that guy. <laughs> so uh, before we get too deep into the weeds of what you got involved in and how you decided to have the New York Times become your enemy, which is always a fun thing to do, I'd like to kind of know just a little bit about you, where you come from. Where were you born? So I was born in actually Los Angeles, California, and I, I lived there for about eight years, and then I moved to Tennessee. And I want to say moving to Tennessee, I live in a pretty normal town. That was what sort of opened my eyes to like how normal Americans live. And so then when I ended up at this elite school, U Chicago, I was like, wait a second, you guys have no idea what normal Americans think. You guys are totally in this bubble. And I think that's what's sort of given me like the energy and the strength to fight back is I feel like I'm a representative of middle America. And most kids on my school have no idea what middle America looks like. So you're obviously very bright because you can't go to University of Chicago if you're if you're a dim bulb. And yet you said uh, you're kind of the, one of the few people that has an awareness of what's going on in the rest of the country. What are your classmates like? What What is the, the, the attitude on campus in general? Yeah, so it's super. I mean, these are the elite of the elite. They went to most of them went to super top boarding schools in like, you know, Massachusetts, California. Their parents are like Goldman Sachs executives. I mean, this is really the coastal elite. And so they just have this attitude that, number one, they think they're better than everyone else. And number two, they buy into this just, you know, insane, woke, elitism attitude, total BLM people. You know, like the people who have those uh, yard signs, like in this house, we believe in science, we believe in Ukraine, you know, all that stuff. It's like those <laughs> kind of people, just total like liberal, you know, coastal elites out of touch who just think they're better than everyone else. That's the, sort of the average kid at my school and probably all other elite universities. So how does your profile kind of interact as you walk around with that if you're a, if a, you're a regular guy from Tennessee? Yeah, well, one thing I always like to say is I have really never met another white middle class kid at my school. I think maybe I slipped through the cracks or I got lucky. Maybe it was an error in the emissions. So, you know, it's definitely something. And a lot of people are condescending about it. They, you know, there, there was one instance where I asked uh, Liz Cheney a question. She came to my school and afterward someone apologized to her for my behavior and said, I'm the worst my campus has to offer. And this was in front of a crowd of maybe a thousand other students. So that's sort of the stuff I get into, but it's definitely like a fish out of water thing, um, you know, but I enjoy it. And I, and I feel like, you know, I'm trying to do something meaningful here. I'm not just trying to create outrage for attention. I really want to fight back. And my goal is I hope kids at my school see like, okay, you know, maybe this is what the rest of America thinks. And, you know, because they think, I mean, I don't even know if they've ever met a conservative before or at least a Trump supporter before until maybe me. So if I can just provide this other perspective, that's what I'm trying to do. But, yeah, you know, it's been chaotic. It's been fun. Um, surprisingly, I've never actually had a negative like face to face interaction. I think either the kids are too scared or maybe they don't care enough. A lot of talk on social media, obviously, including this professor who I'm sure we'll get into. But um, it's actually not been so bad so far. So you, I actually saw that interaction with Liz Cheney. That was uh, brilliant stuff. And you've done a couple of those where you've kind of popped up and done this sort of, um, it's not ambush journalism, but it's real questions, let's say, in, in an otherwise sort of puff scenario, right? Yeah. So my school has a bunch of people, you know, we always invite big speakers. So the two I've had the uh, privilege to ask questions to were Ann Applebaum, who's this Atlantic journalist, 
and Liz Cheney. Um, Ann Applebaum, she came to my school to basically talk to us about fighting disinformation. Obviously, disinformation to them means like the truth. And so I asked her, like, do you think the media was wrong to call the Hunter Biden laptop story Russian disinformation? I asked her that right when no one really believed the story in the media. And her answer was like, actually, I don't find the story that interesting. And I, I couldn't believe her answer. And so that video was posted to Twitter. I think it got a million views, a lot of attention. And then uh, a few months later, Liz Cheney came to speak. And this was when she was still in Congress. And I asked her, I said, will you on the record say you demand the prosecution of Ray Epps? He's an actual insurrectionist caught on video. You're talking about, oh, we need to arrest insurrectionists. Here's a guy who's actually saying, let's go in the Capitol. Do you think he should be prosecuted? And her answer was basically just condescending me for two minutes, calling me a conspiracy theorist, saying I know nothing. Uh, and the audience was booing at me. I mean, it was really like a show. But, you know, I like to think they come to these schools thinking all the kids are going to like worship them and just, you know, ask no tough ball questions. So if I can throw them off guard a little bit, that that's my goal. And that's what I've tried to do so far. What are your parents like? How did you end up being this guy that wants to go out there and, and kind of poke the bear in this in this place where they don't expect it? So surprisingly, I've actually grown up in a single mother household for most of my life, which a lot of people maybe are surprised by. Um, and my mom is just super confident, Christian, outgoing, hardworking. So she sort of instilled with me the confidence to really press hard. And so I really attribute it to that, honestly. And is she very political? Um, she agrees with me. She's not like a political activist, but we pretty much agree on everything, which I'm thankful for because I can, you know, if I had parents who disagreed with me, which I know, unfortunately, a lot of conservative kids do, that would be difficult. So fortunately, we see eye to eye on like everything. Interesting. You said a lot of conservative kids have parents that don't agree with them. That's supposed to be the opposite way, isn't it? Isn't that the way that things have gone historically, as far as you understand? Yeah, well, you know, I have several friends who tell me like, hey, my mom made me get the vaccine and she almost kicked me out of the house. I mean, I've heard like some real horror stories. And so, yeah, it's weird. But, you know, I feel like a lot of young kids now, at least from what I've seen, I feel like there's a, there, there's a, a, a bit of a awakening happening among some of the youth now where there's just so much. I mean, they just see it happening everywhere. All this woke stuff, this LGBT stuff. And I feel like the kids are waking up. Maybe the boomers aren't really as much, but the kids are waking up and they're saying enough is enough. That's what I've witnessed, at least. It's kind of an interesting swing. And I guess there's always swings in, in history. But uh, when I was a kid, when I was your age, I mean, we were anti whatever anybody told us to be if they yeah. said you have to be something right like that was the whole idea. Is, is there a culture of punk rock among young people anymore? Well, that's exactly it. And that's what I've been saying, which is where is the rebellious youth? Like I gave this one example um, in just interviews before, which is um, my school had finally gotten rid of the of the mask mandate. This is back in 2021. So kids didn't have to wear a mask anymore. And it's like, thank goodness. And then literally the next day I went in this classroom and the kids weren't wearing masks, but the professor was like, and you know, total, you know, liberal guy, whatever. He was like, listen, I know the mask mandate had just ended, but we're still in a pandemic. So if you could all wear a mask, I would appreciate it. And I kid you not, within like 10 seconds, every single kid around me went in their backpack and put a mask on. And I'm thinking exactly what you said, which is what happened to the rebellious youth? Like if this were in the sixties, the kids would not be wearing masks. They would call a coward. They would make fun of people wearing masks. They wouldn't get the vaccine. They certainly wouldn't get two, three, four booster shots. And it's so ironic how now the real quote unquote rebels are like Christian conservatives, which is like so funny to me because in the past, those were like the boring, lame, dorky people. But now they're like the rebels. They're the ones who are saying something that no one else is willing to say. It's just such an inverse of like human relations.
there's a uh, a song that Huey Lewis in the News did that's called Hip to Be Square. Do you know that song? No, I'm too young for that. <laughs> <laughs> Go look for it. Find it on YouTube. Download yeah. that song. Well, you listen to it and you'll see. Uh, there, there is always a swing back. I don't know why it, it, it oscillates between these two poles, but right now we're in that weird moment. So what did you go in there to study? What you, what did you, what attracted you to the University of Chicago, which is obviously going to be an, a liberal city and a liberal thing going on if you came out of Tennessee? So several things. I, I came in wanting to study economics and U Chicago, pretty widely accepted, has the best economic school. Uh, you know, Milton Friedman taught there, Thomas Sowell. It really was the spearhead for like Reaganomics and free markets. So it has that history. But what it, the school also has a history for is protecting free speech, which was very important. You know, I got into several top schools, but I was looking at every single one and their record of free speech is just abysmal, right? Like they have no protection of free speech. If you say something there at like Yale, Harvard, Stanford, they're going to kick you out. Like there's just no if and they just you're gone. And yet you Chicago famously in 2016, they actually released this statement saying we're not going to have safe spaces. We're not going to have trigger warnings. This was a big deal at the time. This was like the top tier school going against the grain when Trump was running. I mean, it was a big deal. And so I want to go to a school that actually cares about free speech. And I'm sure we'll get into this later. But, you know, I want to make it clear. I don't actually hate my school. I think my school is doing a pretty decent job relative to every other school. In fact, you know, as we'll get into this professor tried to get me expelled twice and my school said no both times. That wasn't easy for them to do. I guarantee any other school would have just gotten rid of me. I'm too much of a nuisance, you know, annoying, whatever. The fact that you Chicago defended me twice, I have a lot of respect for. But yeah, so it was the economics, um, the legacy, the free speech. Uh, those are the two main things that I think distinguishes you Chicago from pretty much every other school in America. Yeah, so they call it what the Chicago statement is sort of this this yeah. uh, this principle of free speech, and that was really on your calculus as you were looking at, at the options you had in front of you as where you wanted to go was a free yeah, speech. Yeah, listen, I'm not going to go to a school and then get expelled like two years in. I mean, what what, what would that accomplish? I, I want to get a college degree. I think that's important, um, and I want to be able to be free. Like, I don't want to. You know, a lot of people are like, listen, if you're a conservative, you still have to, you know, just be quiet, play by the rules you know, and get your degree and, and get out. To me, that's just like being fake. Like I, you know, for example, I wrote my college essay about going to a Trump rally, which I guarantee every single college advisor would say, what are you doing, kid? Are you stupid? Like, do you want to get rejected? But I've always been of the mindset that like, you should never pretend to be someone else. Like that's just, it, that kills your soul. That's exactly what they want. It's like, and then once you start pretending enough, you start being that other person. So I'm always just being fully transparent. If they don't like me, okay, good riddance. I don't want to go there. And yeah, I want to go to a school where I can be vocal and not have to worry about being expelled because literally that's how it is at every other top school and maybe even just every university period. All right. So free speech was one of your deciding factors. I think that's really, really interesting. That wasn't even in my mind um, when I was 18, 19, 20 years old. I, I guess that the environment is so different. Yeah. But it's incredible that what does free speech mean to you? What, what, what sort of speech do you think should be protected? Are there any limits on free speech that you're concerned about? Well, it's a very interesting question because, you know, and as I keep hinting toward what we'll talk about, but a lot of people are calling me a hypocrite for calling out this this class called the problem of whiteness and saying, you know, oh, you're pro free speech, but you want to get a class canceled. The way I see it is this. I think every individual should be able to say whatever they want. Like, I, I, I don't believe in hate speech. I don't believe in any of that nonsense. Where I do find there to be a problem is you see now universities are firing professors 
for the most like normal things imaginable. Like I saw this one professor, he's claiming he got fired because he said sex is based on chromosomes. I mean, this is like the most basic thing ever. I saw another professor, I think at Penn State, he said the English department made him say English is white supremacy. So what I'm trying to say is clearly we're not in a fair game when it comes to like institutional uh, approved language, right? Universities are going to fire some people for some things and allow other people for clearly egregious things like this anti-white stuff. The way I see it is if our side cannot have a fair shake in promoting literal truths like sex is based on chromosomes, I don't think these anti-white people or these critical race theorists should have the university's blessing in promoting their stuff. Like that's a way for us to lose. And I guess one of my controversial opinions is I feel like the left has actually been kind of successful in that they're aggressive, they're fighting, they're trying to be on the offense, whereas a lot of conservatives are, are just solely on defense. They don't really go after the left. They kind of just stay where they are. And if the left goes after them, then they fight back. I'm trying to promote the approach that we need to aggressively fight back against this critical race theory stuff, this DII, this DII stuff, this anti-white stuff. You know, I think DeSantis, he kind of started this approach. It's going to become more popular, which is like, we should have, in a sense, a cancel culture. Like, there should not be classes saying white people are a problem. Like, let's just be let's just be real. Now, if an individual wants to say that, fine. But when you have a multi-billion-dollar university promoting that stuff, and then that same university fires people who say sex is based on chromosomes, I mean, that's not fair. So I hope that makes sense. But I I sort of feel like we need to be realistic about the sort of culture we're in. And we can't just be totally based on principles always because we're going to lose and the left's going to win. So you picked a fight with a professor on on campus. Is this a professor that you would have taken a class from? Is that something that you would have had to take a class from her? Uh, No, it was fortunately an elective. She was like, I think she literally is like my school has a major called critical race theory, like literally. And she's a professor in in that major. So, no, I would have stayed away from her. That that checks out. And she's yeah. called you a cyber terrorist, a cyber bully, a couple of other sort of uh, choice terms. The New York Times has come to her aid. Set up the conflict here and let's set up why you had this hit piece come out. What's the background on it? Yeah, absolutely. So this all started when I was registering for classes last winter, I was going through the list of classes at my university. And I saw this one class and it was called the problem of whiteness. And it just instantly stood out to me on a gut level, like, what is this class saying? That there is a problem with whiteness, and then whiteness is white people. So you're just saying white people, essentially. And then if there's a problem, there's a solution. I mean, it's not an exaggeration to say we're basically approaching, like, Nazi Germany rhetoric. There's a problem with a people that requires a solution. And, I mean, it should go without saying, but can you imagine if there were a class called problem of blackness, problem of Jewishness, problems of anyness? I mean, it would be, it would have ignited, my school would have burned down by now, probably. So I figured people deserve to know what's being taught at these elite institutions, because this course catalog was only available to students. So this is not, I think now it's public, but beforehand it was, it was only open to students. So what I've used my Twitter in the past is to sort of show people what's being taught at these schools. So I made a thread about the class. Um, I made it, uh, I talked about the, the course description. I talked about who's teaching the class because I, I mean I think it's incomplete if you don't know who's teaching this class and the tweet blew up I think it got over a million impressions so a lot of traction and next thing I know this professor she's calling me a cyber terrorist a cyber bully the most egregious thing she said in my opinion was she wrote an article for my school's newspaper and she basically said my tweets may inspire a, a school shooter essentially to shoot her up the class up everything and I, I couldn't believe that. At that point, I was like, this is insane. 
Um, and then, you know, she got, she got a, a lot of negative emails, a lot of hate, hateful emails, which I don't approve by any stretch of the imagination. I made that clear to the New York Times. Every single journalist who asked me, I say, I condone all of that because it's disgusting. Uh, and I don't encourage hate for anybody, but you know, that, that's the nature of the internet is, you know, you're going to teach a class called the problem of whiteness. You're going to provoke some people. And so anyway, then she said all those nasty things about me. And the worst thing was she tried to get me expelled twice. She filed two separate complaints with my administration, essentially saying I incited like death threats against her, that I was trying to get her injured. And fortunately, my school rejected both of those. And I thought it was all quiet. And then out of nowhere, this New York Times piece comes. So I guess this professor wanted to go after me one more time. And I guess where else do you run than, than the New York Times, I suppose? Um, and actually today, funnily enough, this CNN wrote an op-ed, uh, some Obama person essentially calling me a bully saying, you know, I'm just a bad person. So they're really going after me now. I don't, I don't mind so much, but I'm just surprised they like, I'm like, I'm literally a 19 year old college kid. Like I, I just, I'm amazed they, they are focused so much on me, but I guess that means what I'm doing is somewhat effective. So. Well, the alternative is they would have to go and uh, explain why there's cocaine at the White House, right? right? So I want I want to read the New York Times piece right here, just a little uh, piece of it. It says, although provocatively titled, the anthropology course covered familiar academic territory, how the racial category, quote unquote, white has changed over time. What did you see in that uh, that course description that concerned you other than the title? Did, did it seem like it was a provocative title only? No, in the course description, and if you go to my Twitter, you should be able to find this. Um, it says whiteness is a problem with world making and raising effects. I mean, straight up. And, you know, now she's trying to play this like intellectual game. And she's like, oh, I'm not actually talking about white people. I'm talking about whiteness. I'm talking about this and that. It's all just be I don't buy that at all. I mean, that's just a way to escape it. You know, whiteness itself. This is a concept that the critical race theorists came out to essentially target the categorization of white people to say race isn't real. I mean, all this nonsense. And what's also funny enough is this woman says, oh, I'm not anti-white at all. I'm not, I'm, I'm totally, what's, what, what's, what's so funny is that in her, in her response to me and her little media tour, she was like, he is an exact example of white rage and white fragility. So I'm <laughs> like, okay, you, you know, you literally just hate white people. Just say it out loud, be honest about it. You know, it's like, if you want to say you're not, if you don't hate white people, then, you know, why are you using these literal coded terms to just denigrate all white people? It's just, it's, it's just like, it's just, it's intellectual jargon to confuse people, to disguise, to, to, to distract from what's really at core here. Now, her name is Rebecca Journey. She's a PhD lecturer over there. She's, it sounds like a new professor and I'm looking at pictures of her unless I'm mistaken. She looks like a white lady. Is she not? <laughs> well, that's the thing. It's like the most anti-white people are all white people. Like I've met plenty of black people who agree with me, who say this anti-white stuff is crazy. I think I actually saw a new poll kind of related to this that said more, more black people oppose affirmative action than support it. So the only, yeah, the people who are, who are just supporting this stuff are literal like white women like her. And what's also really funny is if you look at what she's studying, like what her specialty is in, it's literally the most insane thing ever. Get this. Her specialty is in, is in eugenics in Denmark. I, I kid you not. That's her expertise. She's studying eugenics in Denmark. It's is there like, a big history of that there? You know? I, I guess so. But it's like, that's what you're, you know, here's your academic. It's like just a total joke. And then in the meantime, you're over there. Are you still studying economics? Yeah. Yeah. So how many of these sort of fringe weird classes are 
you know, we're floating around. We make a lot of jokes, I think, in the conservative world about how people are coming out with gender studies degrees. When I was a kid, they used to talk about you come out with underwater basket weaving. That was the yeah. joke. And I don't know if anybody's doing underwater basket weaving. Now they're all talking about uh, gender theory. They're talking about race theory. They're talking about these sort of things. How prominent is that as far as majors on campus that you run across? Yeah, no, there are entire majors dedicated to gender studies, critical race theory. And again, I think UChicago is better than most. I think if you go to like Berkeley, Yale, I mean, it's really something else there. But, um, you know, the most egregious thing is taxpayers are, are funding this. I don't know if you're, if you're aware, but universities, even the private ones, they receive tax money from the government. So we're all indirectly paying for this in some capacity. So, I mean, you know, it's just a total joke. And then these are the same people who say the government needs to pay off their student loans. And Americans need to pay for it. I mean, it's just, you're right. It's, I think it is exaggerated to an extent. The whole, you know, basket weaving thing I think is obviously a joke, but it's certainly there. And again, what I think is just worrisome is it's becoming more and more widespread. Like I think initially these anti-white classes were just taught at like law schools and universities, but now we're seeing them taught at like high schools, elementary schools, you know, super, super young and everywhere. And that's what's happening is these universities are like the testing grounds for the stuff where, where the stuff usually starts and then it spreads. And that's the worrying thing is that it's not just relegated to these, you know, universities. It's, it's really everywhere. I guarantee there are, you know, people like Rebecca Journey at like at tons of high schools, you know, everywhere. And that's, you know, that's very worrying, obviously. All right. So you've got some friends that have, uh, you know, you're halfway through your your undergraduate right now. You've probably got some friends going out into the workforce. How are they being received by the real world, as we used to call it when I was when I was coming out of school? How is that? How is this sort of environment jiving with the real world? Do you mean, what do you mean by that? Do you mean like the hiring processes or? Yeah, well, I mean, are they seeing that this is received well in corporate America as a, as a junior employee or do, are oh, they walking into, like, uh, are they walking into like, culture shock? Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, by the same token, a lot of companies have embraced this stuff. A lot of companies now have DEI, DEI executives. I mean, and also this thing with ESG where companies actually receive benefits if they have more diverse employees. I mean, the, the, the crazy thing is, you know, even if you go to an elite school, Harvard, Yale, U Chicago, whatever, if you're a white guy, you're still like really the chances of you getting into, let's say, like a financial job are, are, are not good anymore because you're a white guy. I mean, it really is a scary stuff. Fortunately, that's not the industry I'm trying to go into. But, you know, if, if that's what you're asking um, is it's it's not, you know, the 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 po uh, like what's happening on, on these universities is really spreading to these companies as well. Like it's not just isolated to universities. So that's my, my, that's what my, what, you know, one of my points, which is this is permeating all of society. I think that's well said. And that's, that's the concern that I'm, or the most interesting thing to me is if it's isolated to university, I, universities have always been sort of liberal institutions, right. a lot of free thought, a lot of people studying things that I think have minimal impact on the world. But uh, but where does it go? And, and, and as you said, it, it sounds like it's creeping. So that is being received. And, and you mentioned something just that that troubles me. You said white guys are having a hard time looking at a job like that should have anything to do with it. Um, how do how do students react to that if that's an accepted fact or at least an accepted belief coming out of school? Well, it's just something you can't talk about. I mean, what's really interesting is, you know, I get DMs from guys at my school all the time being like, dude, I agree with you on everything, but man, I wish I could speak up, but I can't. I mean, they're basically expected if they want to get a job at like Wall Street, for example, they have to totally shut up. They have to learn their place. You're a white male, be quiet. And, you know, there's really nothing they can do about it because 
you know, if you're at a, if you're at one of these companies and they find out you're a conservative, oof, you know, you're getting fired from there. So there's really not much they can do about it. It's sort of like the reality of today. And what's really weird is like, you know, I go on LinkedIn, for example, and all of these companies nonstop are bragging about how diverse their employees are and how they care about, you know, gender this and gender that. I mean, it is totally, you know, if you're a white guy or even an Asian guy, it's just so demoralizing. You feel like you're not wanted in society anymore. And I think sooner or later, we're going to see a backlash from this. I just think it has to get even worse than this um, to a point where people just don't even care anymore and they're just going to say what they think. So you had kind of an interesting history. You started off doing some student journalism and then it sounded like you had to found your own website. Now you've moved on to the social media platforms. Can you kind of walk us through how that worked? Obviously, you were out there covering those two events um, and you had some, you know, some run-ins, which they New York Times likes to talk about in the student paper. What did that look like for you? Yeah, sure. So I initially uh, wrote for the student newspaper at my school, the mainstream one. It's called the Chicago Maroon. And I got in this bit of a spat with this left-wing girl columnist. And basically what happened was she wrote this super long article going after uh, people who oppose masks. And I'm like, wait a second. I saw this exact girl at a party not wearing a mask, even though you were supposed to. (laughs) Just hypocrite, which is what you see everywhere. And so you know, she's a public figure. She writes for the newspaper. She's a columnist. You know, if she didn't want scrutiny, she wouldn't be writing for a newspaper. And so I called her out on social media. And then next thing you know, I'm uh, I'm getting a message from the editors saying I'm harassing someone and my behavior is egregious. So I got fired from that newspaper. And then I wrote for the conservative newspaper on my college. And you would think, you know, okay, you're not going to get fired there. Well, sure enough, they basically fired me because I'm too vocal. I'm too outspoken. And maybe I'm too, quote unquote, far right for them. Uh, so I got fired from there as well. And so I had to start my own thing for a little bit. It was called College Dissident. Uh, I had to stop it for some financial reasons. Um, so now I'm just basically on Twitter doing my own thing, which I'm I'm totally fine with. But that's just how it is, I guess, if you're an outspoken conservative kid. So what what about you is too far right for a conservative newspaper uh, at a elite school like that? What, what, what sort right. of ideas do you have? Things. I think, number one, I've always been super vocal about January 6th calling it a feds erection, talking about, you know, how just the feds were involved in my, my, my Liz Cheney question, for example. So I think that was it. Also the anti-white stuff. Very few conservatives, even today, are comfortable using the word anti-white. And I've always been willing to say it. I think it's important to say it because the language you use is important. But I think most of all, it's not even an ideological thing. It's just a, an approach thing. Most conservative students, at least at like an elite school, are very quiet, very docile, which, you know, if that's their approach, fine. I'm super outspoken. I'm, I believe, you know, you need to go out in the field. You need to talk to people. You need to raise your voice. And I just think they didn't, they didn't vibe with that. So those, you know, I wish them well. I don't, I don't want them to fail, obviously, but it was just a difference in approach and I think some beliefs. Are you a, uh, an athlete of any kind? Were you in debate or anything that, that led you to sort of this confrontational nature that you have, which I, I, I love, by the way. I've involved in like debate, uh, that sort of stuff. Uh, and funnily enough, debate even is totally corrupted now. Uh, I had this funny story, which is in my first month in college, I couldn't do a debate tournament because I was white. I'm not even joking. They banned me because I'm yeah, white. I did read that. This tournament is only open to non-whites. And I realized at that point, okay, debate's over. It's corrupted. It's done. And um, I kind of stopped doing that. So can we, can we I, dig into that a little bit longer? Uh, first of all, what is the scenario? How did you find out that you can't go specifically because of skin color, which seems insane to me? Just any anything that you can give us as far as background on yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, no. So in, mind. 
it's absolutely insane. So, you know, I, I came to the school again, I come from a, uh, uh, a middle Tennessee household, you know, we don't have any of this anti-white diversity stuff over here. I came to the school first month in college. I tried to do this debate tournament. They say, no, sorry, this debate tournament's only open to non-white people. And it was just so hilarious because the kid, you know, the kid telling me this is this Indian guy who went to like the best boarding school in America. His dad is literally like a Goldman Sachs executive. And he's basically telling me I'm privileged and I can't do it because I'm white. And I'm just like, I'm looking at him and then I'm looking around the room and no one finds like anything wrong with this. No one's, no one's doubting it. No one's questioning it. White people aren't doing anything about it. And I'm just like, what is this? Like, it's a, it's a debate tournament, man. This is not like white people. It's just, it was, it was egregious. And so I wrote an article about it uh, and it kind of got some decent attention. And funnily enough, the next year, it didn't happen. Uh, so I don't know if that was completely because of me, but I have to believe they got some scrutiny and didn't want to do it. Um, some other stories. I almost, I, so I did debate for a little bit, uh, you know, that, that particular tournament I was banned for, but I did a few others. Uh, I almost lost a round because I, I forgot to give a trigger warning at the beginning of a round. And I was talking about like a war or something. And I almost lost it because they said, hey, uh, you know, you didn't give a trigger warning. And I was, again, I mean, I'm just like, are you serious right now? And you also have to state your pronouns at the beginning of every round. And I didn't do that. So, I mean, debate's totally done. Uh, it's, it's over. <laughs> Hold on. We got to go back to that one. First of all, help people. Like we hear about these trigger warning things. Uh, I always find out that it's kind of a joke. I think the people that are in my age bracket, I'm 41. So you can kind of gauge that. Um, it's not a joke. Apparently <laughs> they're asking for actual, how are you yeah. supposed to know what's supposed to trigger people? Well, that's the funny thing is you have to just assume any remotely offensive thing. So like if let's say your debate tournament topic is about like war, you have to give trigger warning, violence, trigger warning, death, trigger warning, uh, chemical attacks. Like, I'm not you have to literally give like a five minute heads up. And if someone does is is triggered by that, I think you have to like literally change the topic. I mean, it is just it's insane. Um, and so, yeah, no, they're certainly real. Um, and you can literally lose a round in a debate tournament because you failed to give trigger warnings. Whoa, all right. <laughs> that's that's really heavy to me. And and here's yeah. why: the only thing that when you were saying that to me that I that resonated was the concept of self censorship. Maybe reflect on that in the environment that you're in. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, uh, there's, I mean, you know, and debate might just seem like some nerdy little like thing, but it's like you know debate used to be like the way it's actually really interesting debate tournaments used to be in debate as like a sport if you want to call it that that used to be the way that like middle class people actually got into elite schools like it was either you belong to some rich family and so you know you got into like the kennedys for example or you were like a star debater and you kind of rose the ranks like ted cruz for example i think went to like a normal high school but he was an incredible debater and he went to princeton and then he got into the u.s senate it's like what we're seeing now is that every sort of merit-based way to get into an elite school to rise the ranks is being totally corrupted now. So you have that angle. And then you also just have the angle, which is when you debate, you're supposed to think freely. You're supposed to challenge, you know, your notions. You don't see any of that nowadays anymore. I mean, it's actually is scary because now, and what's also really interesting is now the only sort of acceptable debate topics are like the most obscure things imaginable. Like, are there 76 genders or 77 genders? Like, I kid you not, that's a legitimate topic. Everything else is, is accepted. So like vaccines, good. You can't debate that. Trump racist, can't debate that. Republicans, Nazis, can't debate that. Like you can, if you're a conservative in college debate nowadays, you're, you know, you're done for. You literally are done for. So yeah, it does have, it does have wide ranging uh, effects. It's not just like some, oh, who cares? It's like, this is going to affect the way we think. 
And also, you know, it's no surprise why we have these totally incompetent people in our White House now, like Karine Jean-Pierre or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. who are just total morons. Those are the people who are getting into the elite now, and they come up through these debate tournaments. They come up through these elite schools. They take these problem of whiteness classes. This is your future elite. And if you think it's bad right now, wait till my generation gets into politics. We're going to, it's, it's, it's actually quite scary. Cause yeah, it sounds terrifying to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of this stuff sounds really, really scary. Um, historically, as I understand it, I didn't engage in debate, but I knew guys who did. And I respected at least the cerebral chops that it takes to do it people would pick a position that they didn't believe in simply for the challenge of debating and the challenge of taking on an argument that maybe they didn't have any emotional connection to, but yeah. they wanted the the intellectual chess match of trying to see if they could justify it. Isn't, isn't that sort yeah. of the purpose of it? No, not anymore, because even if you don't agree with it, if you just take that position, they're going, like, you have the audacity to defend Trump? Like, are you kidding me? You have the audacity to say there are two sexes? I mean... It's just totally demonized. Uh, so no, that doesn't happen anymore. Um, it's it's sad, but I, I would encourage people if you're if you're if watching this, Google just uh, th there's a great video on YouTube of this Harvard debate tournament. You would think, okay, these people are phenomenal. It's literally the most like discussed. It's like the most incompetent people imaginable. They're talking about like rap music. It, and they're like barely speaking English. It's it's absolutely insane. I mean, it, the decline of like the meritocracy and like merit and like excellence even is totally one of the greatest failures of like America in the 21st century. Well, we've seen the uh, the what is it Smithsonian Museum on African American history tell us that certain things like being on time and work yeah. ethic are are now a problem, right? Those are those are all issues. Excellence is in fact a problem itself. Yeah. Um, let's pivot away from that. And I want to, I want to touch on something that may be controversial. And, and if you don't want to talk about it, totally understood. They bring up a connection to support for Kanye West, which I find interesting, but I don't necessarily understand. And a guy named Nick Fuentes, who I know some things about, and he seems awful, but I would, I would interview him. I don't care. Um, so I'm kind of curious, what are they trying to touch on there? What do you think the New York times is trying to say? And then more importantly, what is the real story that's there? Sure. So um, Kanye West, now known as Ye, I supported him for president. I've been a big fan of his music for ages, and I thought he was interesting. I've been kind of bored with Trump, DeSantis. I, I love Trump. I, I still do love him, but I was hoping for something a little fun. You know, I'm always about, like, how far can we push? How far can we push the needle? How, I'm, I'm a bit of a provocateur, if you will. And so when Ye announced he was going to run uh, in November, I supported it, which was controversial at the time, obviously. Uh, and a lot of people on Twitter didn't like it, but I just thought it would be fun. I'm, again, a big fan of his music, which, you know, people might find surprising considering I'm a skinny white guy, but I like a lot of his music. So I supported it. And uh, yeah, Nick Fuentes, he's a guy who was involved with Ye uh, in, in his campaign for a period of time. And so there was that connection there. What the New York Times is trying to do is because uh, Nick Fuentes has his reputation. They're basically trying to smear me by association. I'm like you, I'm willing to talk to anybody, even if someone is, you know, deemed whatever. I think everyone deserves a fair chance. And like nine times out of 10, maybe even every single time, whatever the media calls someone is never true. There's always more to it. They always have more sophistication, more nuance, especially on the right. I've never really met someone on the right who's just like a dummy and has like the most, the base takes ever. They always have some sophistication, some nuance, some depth. And so, you know, but by this association, they want all their readers to associate Nick Fuentes, who they think is this whatever they want to call him, Nazi, whatever, with me, 
just to totally discredit me, which is just, it's a lazy tactic. I mean, we could do that with, I mean, for example, Obama is, uh, was, was friends of Louis Farrakhan who called Jews like rats or something. Oh, I'm not right, sure. Obama an anti-Semite over that. That's just ridiculous, but that's what they do. Sure. All right. So, um, and, and Nick Fuentes just popped up on uh, something else earlier today. I guess he's speaking at the uh, university of Arizona with Jacob oh, Chandley. And so, and Jacob Chansley was responding out there in the world, and this is all Twitter stuff. So I've, I've engaged in the Twitter drama in my life, which is funny. I'm, I'm in your world now. That's not my world. Uh, but, but I look out there and you see this and, and the, he says, you know, what should I do? Uh, Jacob Chansley, the famous QAnon shaman who just got out of prison. And he says, what should I do? Should I be going out there and, you know, should I, should I boycott this event? And I DM'd him. I don't know if he'll get it, but I have a big enough account. People tend to read it. And I sent him a, a DM and I said, go talk to him. And if he says something foolish or racist or awful, then blow it out of the water. The only answer to bad speech is good speech. So what is I the agree. what is the story with Nick Fuentes? They're obviously trying to smear him. They say that he's a Holocaust denier in the piece that I'm looking at here, which is, you know, like you say, that's an anti-Semitic smear towards you. They're trying to say you're both white guys and you both have hair, so you must be the same. Uh, I can see that pretty clearly. What do you think the, are there any positive takes that Nick Fuentes, I don't know enough about what his political statements is, other than I, he seems to be kind of a, like what we'd call like a, a like a shit disturber. That's what my dad would call him. Yeah. Like he goes out there and stirs the pot. He might be a terrible human being. I, I don't know. I just, Look, I'm not know. really in the business to like condemn people. I find out they'd be kind of pathetic. So I'm not going to say anything about, I, I'm not really in the industry of, of saying anything that, uh, you know, I've talked to him a few times and he was always nice to me. So I don't really have anything personally bad to say about him. Um, but I'm not going to, any, gonna any takes that, does he have any takes that he's like said, Hey, I believe this thing. And then you're like, Oh, I don't know about that. Has he I ever, really, I don't really, I'm not really, you know, I, I don't want to say anything because I don't know if it's true. I, I don't know too much about him. Honestly, I've spoken to him a few times, but I'm not, again, I'm not in the business to just condemn anyone. I find that they'd be kind of pathetic. I think people are over that also people are over just like condemning someone over this and that. So I'm not, I, I don't really have anything else to say about this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a topic at you, just uh, totally blind. You haven't heard this before, maybe. Are you familiar with the group called Moms for Liberty? Yes. Okay, what do, you, what do you take away from them? What do you know about them? Well, I know they are called like anti-Semitic Nazis or something. Um, I don't actually know too much about what they've said or what they've done, but I, I know they're being smeared. I actually don't, can, can you fill me in on that? I actually, yeah, yeah, let's do it. So, and, th and this is just a like a, a reasonable guy take. I'm kind of curious on yours. So they have a newsletter that they put out from each of their chapters. They have whatever, 130 chapters around the country and they're moms, as you can imagine. And the moms are interested in going to school boards and pushing for whatever policies they want, as is their right as Americans. And uh, throughout this, they're talking about, their newsletters talk about resisting government indoctrination for children, um, you know, our children are the future, so on. And on one of the newsletters in one of the chapters of the 130 or so chapters they have, one of them has a quote up on the top right-hand side of the newsletter. It says, Moms for Liberty, you know, episode number 10, the date, the month, and the year, and so on. And underneath it, it has in a, just a block, no context. It says uh, something to the effect of, uh, whoever owns the children owns the future, Adolf Hitler. Mm, okay. Now, do you think that is someone saying, man, we really got to emulate Adolf Hitler? Or do you think there's a nuanced position in, in 2023? Wait, so did they did they quote Adolf Hitler or was it just an Adolf Hitler quote? Like, did they put, this quote came from Adolf Hitler? Yes, they did. They they okay. quoted Adolf, Adolf Hitler's name is right next to it. Right, well, that's obviously not a good look. I mean, yeah, in the 130 pages, I have to, did someone slip it in maybe? Was no, 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 this is 130 chapters being, um, there's different organizations around the country. They all fall under the same umbrella. This is like a two-page emailed newsletter to, to moms. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously not a good look. But again, I'm not in the industry. I just, I find it to be pathetic to just condemn people 
over this stuff. Like, I don't know what the, I would, I would ask them. I'd say, what did you mean by this? Do you like Adolf Hitler? Like, why did you include this? And if they, if they say, I love Hitler. Okay. Obviously I don't agree. with Yeah. This gut. And I think it's just kind of, because again, like the left doesn't do this, man. I mean, the left has some really bad people, but they don't really condemn people. They don't go after people in their own ranks. I don't think so. And so for the right to have this like police mentality, I just find it to be like gross. Like, you know, talk to the person, get to know them better. And if you take away, okay, this is a despicable person. Sure, get get rid of them. But to just see something and your knee jerk reaction is condemn them, you know, get rid of them. I just don't like that. I find it to be kind of like pathetic. I don't know. That That's what I think. Maybe, you know, is that going to so hurt? They were, they were. They were reached for comment, and the comment was that uh, it was lacking the context that they were using it as a cautionary tale because stealing the children was the way that you indoctrinate the children. With sure. that, does that does that sit right? Well, it makes a bit more sense. I don't know if it's again. I wouldn't use a Hitler quote, obviously, but you know, again, I'm just you know, I I, I I'm I've said what I said. I don't think it's I don't think it's good for conservatives just to attack other conservatives. For being too edgy i find that to be a waste i mean we are literally battling people who think kids should be allowed to change their gender at like four years old five years old and yet conservatives are more focused about what some moms are saying i just it's a waste of effort and energy like i don't really and if you disagree i'd love to hear your points but i just find it to be uh it's not it's not worth the, the energy well i did a whole podcast where all i did was quote hitler for an hour and uh describe them as cautionary tales because hitler said a lot of really interesting things that we should note are incredibly dangerous and they are harbingers of things to come if you watch what the political left is doing. That's my take on it. Uh, I'd be curious. In fact, go watch that episode if you like and go check it out. And then let me know if you find it to be inflammatory. I think that when someone tells me I can't do something, and I, I probably have a little bit more sense of you, a little bit more age, but uh, I still do the same thing. If someone says, no, you can't do this, that's probably the first thing I'm going to want to do. Uh, exactly. don't, touch that, don't touch that pan. I'm going to find out how hot it is. And I, and I have some scars to prove it. And when there's this such censorship of certain people, when people, when, you, when you're told nonstop, you can't listen to him, you can't support him, you can't believe in him. It's like, I'm going to look into more. It's a Streisand effect. Just like when the New York Times dropped this article, I gained 13,000 followers from that. It's like, thanks for the boost. Like, I have to actually thank the New York Times. Yeah, thanks for the attention. It's like, you know, and maybe 20 years ago when people actually respected the Times, it's like, if you actually get a hit piece in there, you're done for, man. But no one takes them seriously anymore. Just like when these, you know, SPLC organizations call someone this and that. No one takes them seriously. It's only going to help them more. And, and that's just how, because that it's like the boy cry wolf situation. You call someone a Nazi a million times, they're not a Nazi. Then the one real Nazi emerges, no one actually cares anymore. And then they gain power. And then that's when things really hit the fan. I think that also seems true. My kids are now very young, but they are learning the boy who crawled wolf story. We are talking about that very frequently. Uh, it's It seems to be lost. I actually read an Aesop's fable today about the, the raven and the swan. Do you know the story? No, you know, yeah, I need a little bit of a. I, I didn't remember it either. It's been a long time since I saw it. It's a lot longer than probably than since you saw these things. But essentially, the story is a raven looks at a swan, sees the swan, and thinks, "What a beautiful creature! I would like to be a swan." So it flies down out of its perch. It stops eating carrion and things like that, and it hangs out in uh, the water and it swims around with the other swans and it eats lake weed and ducks its head underwater and it preens itself and washes itself until it slowly withers away and dies from starvation because you can't wash yourself and eat weeds if you are a raven. And the moral of the story obviously being, no matter how you change your behavior, you cannot change the physical nature of what you are. 
Right. I thought that was an amazing thing. My wife, uh, who is kind of based, <laughs> kind of shared that with my kids who are four and six years old and let them kind of understand the takeaways. They're a little bit too young to probably understand it. But just like the boy who cried wolf, there were these tales that we all grew up with. And I imagine that you probably saw Aesop's fables in some variety or some format. And uh, they used to actually teach us something. Now I feel like they're they're just a, a lesson of what racist looks like or something. Or It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's the PhD topic of a, of a uh, Rebecca journey. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's sad. It really is. So, okay, so imagine this. Uh, you've had some conflict with this woman. Have you ever engaged her personally, by the way, out of curiosity? Uh, I'm definitely not going to do that now. After all the things she said about me and how I'm harassing her, I feel like if I even like look at her, she's going to accuse me of uh, physical harassment. So I'm, I've, I've never seen her in public, but even if I did, I would not go up to her. Let's say there's an organized situation, a debate over this topic, the problem of whiteness, why it should be discussed. She wants to present her arguments on why you're going to present the arguments on what the, what the issues are with that particular academic topic. Would you sit and debate her? Oh, absolutely. If it were like an organized debate in front of like an audience. Yeah, you're a New York Times moderator and oh, maybe somebody from Fox News. She would though. I mean, if she were respect, but I don't think she would. I think she would say I'm just going to lie or something. But I don't know. I would love to do that though. Absolutely. Should we try to set something like this up? Because I because I know you've had some pretty you got to interview Tucker Carlson, right? Somehow. Yeah, that was phenomenal. Yeah. Talk to me about that. And then we got to talk to Tucker Carlson into moderating this debate and we can get somebody like maybe maybe Joy Reid can sit next to him. There's no way she's going to do that. Um, but no, uh, the Tucker interview, I was very fortunate. I'm, I'm not going to say how I got his contact info because that's just private. But he reached out to me at a certain point. We talked. Uh, it was was phenomenal guy. As I, I've said this on Twitter, literally one of the nicest, most humble guys I've ever spoken to, despite his massive fame. I mean, really is a great guy. Um, and then one day I was like, you know what, what if I interviewed him? And I literally just shot my shot. I said, Hey man, if we could talk for however long you want, I, I would love to talk to you about what you're normally not asked. You know, he's usually asked political questions, this and that. I wanted to ask him like, what kind of kid were you in college? And what advice do you have for young men? And do you think even college is worth it? And what do you, you know, I asked him about how porn is damaging young men, you know, stuff pertaining to what I think is my audience, which is younger men. Uh, he agreed surprisingly was totally on board um and we did it and yeah it was phenomenal so yeah total stellar guy um uh, great guy where did that interview come out uh, i was on youtube actually so if you just google daniel schmidt tucker carlson you should be able to find it, it has around sixty thousand views um it's also that, pinned to my twitter so yeah it seems really low sixty thousand views if you want to boost it, I love it. <laughs> we will boost it. We will absolutely boost it. I think everybody should go see that. I think it's interesting. Uh, Tucker is one of the most, like you say, he's he's so talented. Yeah. And when he speaks, everything he has to say, it seems to run together. I don't. He has a special gift to be able to string words together. What sort? Did you walk away with any sort of thoughts that that changed your perspective, or did you just think he was a great guy? Well, it's been about a year, so I need to sort of recap. Um, you know, I, I guess I just. I like how real he is. I mean, I don't think any other Fox News host would have let some kid, you know, back then I I had maybe 20,000 Twitter followers. Now I have nearly triple that. So I don't think any, any other Fox News host would, would let some kid interview them for nine for 40 minutes, you know, and he didn't ask me in advance, hey, what are you going to ask me? Don't ask me any curveball. I could have straight up just debated him for 40 minutes and I think he would have done it. So it was really just his realness, his down-to-earthness, if that's a word. Uh, and I, I just think he's, um, you know, on that aspect in terms of takeaways, you know, again, I would have to rewatch it. I don't really remember exactly what he said, you know, something he said, which I kind of disagree with is he said, drop out of college. He really emphasized that I would disagree with that. Now, obviously if college is like an insane amount of money, that's different, but 
I do think we still should encourage young conservative people to go to college. It doesn't have to be an elite school, but you should either go to like trade school or, you know, a normal school, undergraduate, get a degree because, I mean, the data still shows that people with college degrees make way more money than people who don't have college degrees. So I do disagree with that approach. Maybe he was out of context or he wanted to say more, but, um, you know, he really emphasizes marrying young, having lots of kids. I think he married when he was like 20 or 21 which is un unheard of nowadays. So just sort of that advice. I mean, he feels like, you know, what's really interesting is, you know, a lot of young men now are growing up without fathers, me included. And so to hear this advice from him and people like Jordan Peterson and even Andrew Tate, if you will, uh, that advice is like is needed now. And it's so it's so absent because I think 50 percent of households now don't have a father or something. I mean, it's insane. So I, I just I, 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 I love what he's doing. He's a really great guy. I want to dig into the idea of college. Is it worth it sort of thing? You you push back. He said, no, I kind of have the same instinct. I'm, I'm a little older than you. I'm a little younger than Tucker. So we're in between there. I went to college. Obviously, I can't speak from a position of strength. And yet there does seem to be a value proposition that's missing. It's a lot of debt for most people, even for, uh, even for a state school. There's a lot of money involved. And let's say that you don't want to go do something that requires, let's say you don't want to be an accountant. Let's say you don't want to be an economist. You don't want to be a biologist. How much sense does it make for some of your colleagues? Did you have classmates that didn't go to school, that didn't go to college and started in a trade or something? Uh, well, high school classmates. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In high school, you know, I think only I went to like a very deep red high school, you know, in the middle of Tennessee. Uh, I think 50 percent of my graduating class didn't go to college. So totally different story here. If you go to like some fancy, you know, area in new england it's like every single person goes to college so there's a big difference there you know regarding college i would just say the data is out there which shows number one people of college degrees just make way more even if it's the same uh sort of occupation but number two also and this particularly you know relates to men very few women are, are willing to marry a guy who or at least college educated women are not are not willing to marry a guy who doesn't have a college degree. In fact, they're not even willing to marry a guy who makes less than them. Most women nowadays expect a guy to have a college degree and make more than them. And so we're already seeing this. I think there's a study now that says 60% of men in their 20s are single. So there's already this big dating issue because of like dating apps and feminism and this and elsewhere. I would just urge a lot of young a, a, a lot of young men to consider like, okay, if I don't go to college, am I going to be able to find a wife who loves me? who who even if I don't have a degree, even if she makes more than me, I mean, there's these sort of things which may sound juvenile or kind of like goofy, but I think are actually serious concerns. So I, I would trust those two things. I'll trust the wages. The data is still out there that guys in college or people people of college degrees make more, but also the marriage aspect. I mean, it's 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 harder to find a, a woman, like a, a good quality woman if you if you don't have a college degree. But if you disagree with that, I'd love to hear why. I'm not sure I do agree with it, but I'm not sure I disagree dramatically either. I think it's, um, so I, I look at an example. I'll give you an example. One of my best friends is a special operator, got out of the Air Force. Um, he was a deadly killer. He's a super stud. And uh, and he married a girl that he met at his CrossFit gym, who's an attorney. He's never gone to college. He's one of the sharpest people I know. He has He's very well read. Uh, he's incredibly articulate. He's very funny. And he has a very subtle sense of humor. He's a good looking guy and he's super fit. Um, uh, I think he probably made you know, $50,000 a year or less as a, uh, as an enlisted guy in the, in the air force. And I think his wife makes over $300,000 a year. So 
I've seen examples of it not be the case. I've also seen buddies who were, you know, a lot of my friends were special operations. So they're kind of exceptional human beings, whether they went to college or not was sort of a sort of irrelevant. So they may be a bad test case. Um, but there's something to be said about people in the trades that get out there and start making money. If you're making 20, 40, 60, you know, $65 an hour doing a specialty trade and it took you two years to earn it. So you're 20 years old. You're now your age. Now imagine yourself going out and making 60 or $75,000 right off the bat. Um, and you got no debt because somebody paid your training. You know, there's a, the whole Mike Rowe movement, I think is, is sort of interesting. Have you, have you followed Mike Rowe at all? Are you familiar with him? Yeah. Yeah. His, I, I'm aware of that. And you know, when I say college, I'm including trade school, I'm including anything just post high school, I guess. I, I want to clarify that. Um, okay. So yeah, trade school, absolutely a valuable thing if, if that's what you want to do. Yeah, yeah they're making I mean, more money than me right now. Absolutely. I don't deny that. No, it's funny to watch because you look at people that came out and did certain things and they they made a bunch more money. I all remember, I, you know, I, I had the same sort of thought. Uh, I didn't want to go to a, a even a military academy because I didn't want the work of it. I wanted to be able to be free and have fun and and go learn things, you know, at my speed, which led to five years of college instead of four, if you can imagine. They don't like uh, when you get a 0.75 GPA, it turns out. That's, uh, that is frowned upon. <laughs> it's pretty oh, yeah. hard to do, too. you got to do a complete moron job. Yeah. But uh, there is something interesting about folks that kind of put their head down, did some hard work up front during 18 to 22, during those kind of power academic knowledge years, and then walk out debt-free with a job that pays them something, as opposed to, I, are you taking on debt right now for what you're doing? No, so I'm actually on a full ride scholarship, which is Man. maybe that maybe that impacts my uh, viewpoint in college. Um, so I'm yes. about that. I don't think I would be in college right now if I had to pay a mountain of debt. So, and and so that's the interesting thing. And I'd I'd love it if you reported back to us too after you kind of talk to some of those around you, because I'm sure there are some scholarship students, but you've got to be an anomaly as far as being full academic. Is that what it is? Full academic? Yeah. 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 So good on you for doing so. Um, I actually lost one of those. So I know a little bit about what it takes to get one, if you can imagine. And I know, and and it also takes you just doing your job, which it sounds like you're doing so. Um, but yeah, I'm curious if, if your perspective changes when you talk to some folks that look like they're coming out with what, what, what is a, a, an annual um, tuition payment at uh, University of Chicago? Well, it's funny. U Chicago is actually the most expensive school in America. So it's around 85,000 a year. It's insane. It's, I would not be paying that much. Yeah. I would. Yeah. It's, it's bad. But, that's an incredible amount of money. Yeah. That's just the tuition, or is that room and board too? Oh, that's that's everything. That's 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 everything. So eighty thousand dollars a year. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's really. But I will say, most students are on. Like, I don't. I don't think many are paying the full sticker price. That's that's rare. That's rare. I think so. Sure. But it's still. Yeah, it's insane. It is. And then you mentioned that there's enormous endowments, not and plus federal subsidies. So we're talking about somebody is paying the salary of a Rebecca Journey yeah. by paying those eight. Somebody's paying full price. Oh, absolutely. There are certainly no, I mean, there are uh, like Bill Gates, son went to my school, for example, I'm sure he was paying all of it. But and there are just a lot of rich kids at my school, children of like princes and freaking Middle East or something. So yeah, they're definitely. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's gonna be a strange world for you to walk out of that. Uh, where, yeah. do you see, where do you see yourself going? What's the trajectory you're, you're looking at? And I'll, and I'll kind of uh, we'll land on where you see the future is for you. And then maybe what you what kind of world you want to walk into as you're as you're agitating there and, and being a cyber terrorist. <laughs> right. So I definitely want to go into either politics or political media. I mean, I wouldn't be doing this if that's not what I wanted to do, because I'm definitely not getting a job in like Goldman Sachs, McKinsey. That's that's gone. So definitely politics, political media, maybe run for office. We'll see. But uh, in those areas, for sure. And what do you think about America? Are you long on America or are you looking at it like uh, we're a, a nation decline that's going to fail? So my hope is that 
it has to come down to my generation, Generation Z, and particularly it has to come down to the young men. I just think men are the ones who are always going to fight the war, is always going to provide. They're the ones who are going to restore the nation. And so my hope is basically, and I see this more and more, more and more young men are fed up with just the basic, you know, woke stuff, you know, LGBT stuff, all of this stuff. It's They're fed up with it because men are men, right? They want to have fun. They want to be aggressive. They want to be physical. So when they're told feminism nonstop, when they're told, you know, men are toxic, it's just too much. So my hope, and I'm, I'm optimistic about this, is that the men are eventually going to rebel and they're going to sort of be the ones who can save America. I, that's, that's my hope. Maybe it's too optimistic, idealistic, but I mean, we've been in, you know, go, the, I mean, go throughout history. There have been declines and, and rises. So I'm, I'm, I am optimistic we can get out of this and things will get better because of the young men. All right. Fair enough. So the last question about that is, since you just brought it up, um, if young men are going to save it, women have to to buy in. That's the way that men decide to do things. And one of two things can happen. I think either um, men push the way and women accept it, or women sort of secretly want men to to be men, which that's been my experience in life. Yeah. What um, do you think there are women in Generation Z? And I don't know. I, I just I don't have any interaction with Gen Z. Probably for for my own safety, I just don't need to be running around like teenage girls. That would drive me nuts. But what is the what is the environment out there, both the dating environment, the social environment, as you deal with your peers uh, of the other gender? Like, what does it look like? What where do you yeah. see? It? Does that give you hope? Well, right now, I would say it's it's very it's very bad. Well, it's bad in my you know I'm totally against the hookup culture stuff. I'm 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 of the you know I'm a Catholic, so I believe you know you should marry, uh, or you should date for marriage. You should be with the same person. You know all of that. That's what I believe. But obviously, Gen Z doesn't believe in that. But I also you know, I have to believe that that's how, you know, that's how it's been in the past where when, you know, the people were young, they were having sex, partying. So I don't actually know how different it is now than it is, you know, 30, 40 years ago. My hope is, you know, people mature. I think what has been a real game changer are the dating apps, because that's just sort of opened up all this potential, you know, oh, if I want to have sex, I can just download this app and I can do it. In that, you know, and people develop these addictions and, you know, there's these studies that like 90% of uh, women go after 10% of men. I mean, all, you know, all this stuff. So that's what I worry about the most. Um, and also, you see these studies now, women just don't want to have children anymore. You know, there's higher and higher numbers. This study came out today saying that 30% of households now only have one person, and that's the highest it's ever been. So we're seeing a lot of, you know, th this is definitely rapid change. So, you know, I am a little pessimistic about the dating scene. I'm not too interested in that right now. Again, my hope is, as you said, if the men push one way, the women will follow. That's sort of my hope. Um, and, and I think a lot of women secretly do want conservative guys. That's sort of been the, the, the rule for a while now. And I think that's, that's definitely true. Okay. Well, your mouth to God's ears. And uh, as another Catholic, I, I can appreciate that position. I think that whatever you're saying makes sense. So I hope that is the way that we end up going. I think it might be kind of rocky in between, but yeah, you're, you're right. I'd love to do another discussion at some point about uh, dating apps, internet dating, uh, the sort of the role of pornography. It sounds like you talked to Tucker about it. I'm curious what the, what the view is from, from your end of it too, at some point in the future, because man, it looks, it looks like that has been the major thing. I, I have the unique experience, as you can imagine, you must have had an entire digital lifespan, right? You, you grew yeah, up in the, everything, yeah. what year were you born? Uh, 2003. <laughs> so very young. 2003. So I'm a, I'm a junior in college at that point. And, and literally I had the first Facebook accounts. I had the first, right. you know, yeah. Napster accounts and file yeah. sharing. And so I remember seeing those things. I, I downloaded my first MP3 when I was in high school, if you can imagine how mm. funny that is. And it yeah. took all night and I tied up the phone lines. And so yeah. when you do things like that, it's a very different childhood. And you guys grew up in a totally digital experience. And so right. the idea that 50,000 people would read what you have to write at 19 years old, 
sounds sort of normal. It sounds yeah. insane. It sounds wild to me. Yeah. So I, I think that'd be an interesting exploratory uh, talk, but I do really appreciate you spending time with us. Thank you for proving that you are not in fact a cyber terrorist. Yeah. Uh, I'm, we're going to have to work on setting up this debate. I think you, Dr. Journey, two fair moderators, like I said, Joy Reid, maybe Taco will get in. I think that nothing could be, it'd be the rumble in the jungle kind of thing. That would be a real wild, uh, that'd be a wild talk. Uh, thanks for spending, yeah, thanks for spending some time. Good luck in this upcoming year. Keep us posted with what's going on and we'll boost that, uh, that Tucker interview for you too. Yeah, thanks so much, man. Take care. I appreciate it. You are listening to The Kyle Serafin Show, which is streamed live from Liberty Hill, Texas, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 9.30 Eastern or 8.30 here in Texas, America. Don't forget to like this video on rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin. Please share the link if you can for today's show on your favorite social media platform. And please consider subscribing on rumble.com or wherever you get your podcasts. This show continues to grow because of listeners like you and because of five-star reviews like this. It's Friday, so a nice short one. This is from Jin4949, entitled, So Good, one of my favorite podcasters. I'll take it. I'll take it today. Thanks so much, Jin. We do appreciate it. I want to say thanks to my guest, Daniel Schmidt. And also, our show is only possible because of the hard work and the skill of our technical producer, Ryan Matta. You can follow Ryan at Ryan Matta Media, that's M-A-T-T-A, on Twitter. And if you did like our opening theme, it was composed and performed by my very talented brother, Casey Serafin. Folks, that's all for today. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next week. I hope you have a great one. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Serafin Show, streamed live Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays on rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin. Follow Kyle on Twitter and True Social at Kyle Serafin.